Anatta is translated as <coughs> non-self, and Shunyata is translated as emptiness. Now, I find that many people, when we speak about non-self or speak about emptiness, I feel that, find that many people have actually quite an emotional reaction to these words. Some people tell me when they hear these words that they just sort of stop listening. They, they tune out as if it's feeling that this is a teaching that's too complex, unfathomable, and way beyond them. That it's got little to do with them if they're just struggling to find you know, one or two moments of being present. Sometimes people tell me they hear these words with a little aversion, non-self and emptiness, that they hear them as being somewhat nihilistic, um, a kind of prescription for passivity or a surrender of direction or relatedness. Sometimes people tell me they they hear these words, non-self and emptiness, as a kind of in a sort of accusatory sense, as a kind of judgment when their reality feels to be very much locked within a world of self. I think it's very important to remember that the Buddha didn't reserve this teaching on non-self for only experienced students or those who were quite advanced in their practice. In fact, by all accounts, the second discourse that the Buddha gave was the teaching of non-self. So when new students would turn up for the first time, he would launch right into it, non-self. So those of you who are newer to this practice, please feel you're, you're occupying the company of many in the past. Now, the Buddha considered the teaching and the understanding of non-self of being really at the heart of the liberated mind. That there was really no better means to bring about the end of despair and sorrow and suffering than to understand non-self. And rather than presenting non-self, and please, please note, I'm very specifically using non-self and not no-self. And, you know, there is a world of difference that lies in that one consonant. So, rather than presenting non-self as something terribly complex and difficult to understand, the Buddha spoke about non-self and emptiness as simple realities that are staring us in the face every moment of our days. And this teaching of non-self is actually a teaching that spans all Buddhist traditions, but it's not particularly restricted to Buddhist traditions. You find people in other traditions, many traditions, who speak about their encounters, almost their collisions, with non-self. To read you something by Oliver Sacks. He's a, a psychologist many of you will be familiar with. 
After breakfast, I wandered out. It was a particularly glorious September morning. He, he wrote this when he was recovering, by the way, from a serious leg injury. It was a particularly glorious September morning. Settled myself on a stone seat with a large view in all directions and filled and lit my pipe. This was a new or at least almost forgotten experience. I'd never had the leisure to light a pipe before, or not, as it seemed to me, for 14 years at least. Now suddenly I had an immense sense of leisure and unhurriedness, a freedom I'd almost forgotten, but which now it had returned seemed the most precious thing in life. There was an intense sense of stillness, peacefulness, joy, a pure delight in the now. Freed from drive or desire, I was intensely conscious of each leaf, autumn-tinted, on the ground, intensely conscious of the Eden around me. The world was motionless, frozen, everything concentrated in intensity of sheer, sheer being. Now on this morning, as though on the first morning of creation, I felt like Adam beholding a new world with wonder. I had not known or had forgotten that there could be such beauty, such completeness in every moment. I had no sense at all of moments, of the serial, only of the perfection and beauty of the timeless now. There is a commentary, again from Dogen. It says, emptiness includes the sun, moon, stars and planets, the great earth, mountains and rivers, all trees and grasses, bad people and good people, bad things and good things, heaven and hell. They are all in the midst of emptiness. Now, the Buddha presented anatta, or non-self, both as a teaching and as a practice, and ultimately as a way of seeing, as an embodiment of a liberated heart. And he pre- as a teaching, he presented this very simply, saying, no thing can be found, inwardly or outwardly, or anywhere in the world, that has an independent self-existence. That's, that's it in a nutshell. I could finish the talk right now. Hmm? <laughs> no thing can be found, inwardly or outwardly, or anywhere in the world, that has an independent self-existence. As a practice, he taught this saying, nothing arises in body or mind that should be regarded as mine, as belonging to me, or who I am. That nothing arises in the world, that should be regarded as me, mine, or belonging to me. And the practice of non-self naturally follows on from our own investigation of the teaching. And this is something to be investigated. This is not something to be accepted as an ideology or a belief. It is something, like all this teaching, to be investigated in our own experience. When, the, when instructing in the practice, and the Buddha was asked the question, what is the liberated mind, the mind liberated through understanding emptiness? The Buddha answered, the nun goes to a forest 
or to the root of a tree or to an empty, ta- empty hut, reflecting this is empty of self or what belongs to self. And this is the liberation of heart through emptiness. And the Buddha went on to describe this understanding as the abode, the home of the great or the noble person. Now, this practice of non-self, I think, was for the Buddha and was for us and can be for us, something very immediate. And it's a practice that has a direction. And the direction of practicing non-self is not the erasure of self. It is not the annihilation of self. That is not the direction. The direction of the practice of non-self is to dispel confusion and misery. Its direction is to uproot the origins of suffering and struggle and torment. I think it is so important, really, to remember what it is that the Buddha taught. You know, great experiences may or may not come our way in meditation. We may or may not get fantastically concentrated. In many ways, this is kind of all secondary. What is primary in the teaching, and I think primary in our own longings, the longings of our own heart, is to bring about the end of suffering and torment by understanding its causes. In fact, the Buddha said, I teach just one thing, that there is suffering and there is the end of suffering. And understanding that is what opens the door, opens the door to boundless love and compassion and generosity and empathy and kindness, all resting upon a very deep transformative understanding of non-self and emptiness. Again, Dogen, who is one of the great, great poets of emptiness, you might say, He says, you must surely know emptiness as a perfect grass. This emptiness is bound to bloom like hundreds of grasses blooming, seeing a dazzling dazzling variety of the flowers of emptiness. We We surmise an infinity of the fruits of emptiness. We observe the bloom and fall of the flowers of emptiness and learn the spring and the autumn of them. I feel that we would probably, if we reflect upon it in our own experience, agree that every single quality of mind and heart that we long for and that we value and that we see as being noble, our capacity, you know, such as our capacity to reach out and touch another with, with love and compassion and empathy. These moments are actually the moments when our sense of self and other are most quiet, aren't they? When we touch upon the qualities of peace, of stillness, of integrity, our capacity to embrace pain with equanimity, I think these are all moments and all qualities when we are least concerned with protecting or asserting 
and independent self-existence. It is almost as if these, the loveliness of love and compassion and empathy and kindness, it is almost as if they seem to arise from emptiness. Look at the other extreme in the spectrum. The times when we suffer the most, the times when we feel most disconnected and estranged from others, the moments when we feel most gripped by fear and ill will and craving, these most difficult times in our lives, if we look at them, these are also the moments when the sense of I, of self, and of you and other feel most solid, most outstanding, most prominent. It's almost as if to say that suffering is the bloom of confusion. Now, if we can see for ourselves that the most spacious and the most peaceful, the most connected moments in our lives are the moments when we are actually the least self-preoccupied or self-obsessed, then it's good to ask of ourselves, what is it that leads to the denial of that kind of spaciousness? What is it that locks us into self-preoccupation or absorption, often places we really don't want to be? Now, I'd like to take just a moment to look at why why we make this teaching of non-self so complex, you know, and kind of like why we at times struggle with it. Because surely, I think for sure, if we struggle with the teaching of non-self, we're probably not very likely to practice it. Now, no, I think there's no doubt that one of the primary reasons that we struggle with the concept, of, never mind the reality of non-self, it be, is because it, it's sort of like the polar opposite of our felt experience. You know, embarrassing as it is somewhat to admit it, we, we actually do pretty much see ourselves as being the center of the universe. With the whole world orbiting around us, it's kind of like an optical illusion, isn't it? I mean, if you think about this optical illusion, you know, when we wake up in the morning, you know, isn't it true that we see the sun rise over there and we see the sunset over there? Doesn't it look like the sun's orbiting around the world? Most of us know, I think we all agree that's not true, isn't it? We we, we actually... This has been figured out by other people, and you know it's pretty much, I think, accepted. The sun does not orbit around the Earth. Looks like it, doesn't it? Comes up, goes down. So it's really an optical illusion, isn't it? And actually, this is kind of very much the same as what this idea of self, substantiality of self, is at the center of the world. However, needless to say... When we do see ourselves at you know, the center of the world, we take things pretty personally. I mean, the other kind of polar opposite of this teaching of non-self, this felt experience of self, I mean, when you wake up in the morning, doesn't it just kind of feel as if yourself, myself, is just sort of waiting for us? Sort of like a familiar old pair of slippers, isn't it? Sitting beside our bed. And we just wake up and we slip right into them, you know. And 
It's almost as if that kind of sense of self is just sort of waiting for our body and mind to get into gear and move into my plans and my, you know, programs and my agendas and my wants and my fantasies and my nightmares and my tasks. I mean, it just feels like it's just there, doesn't it? We know who we are. I mean, it's a little bit like the story of Nasruddin, you know, the kind of Sufi wise fool, you know, who goes into the bank to cash a check and... And the cashier says, have you got any ID? And he says, have you got a mirror? And, and they, she says, yes. He looks in the mirror. He says, that's me, all right. <laughs> so it feels like that for us, doesn't it? That's me, all right. However, as I mentioned, at the center of the universe, we do actually tend to take things pretty personally. Things either happen to me or I make things happen. Things belong to me. And, of course, I have this very long, detailed story about who I am. So this sense of self is kind of like an enduring companion, although sometimes I know it feels like our worst enemy because we can see, like, the offspring of this sense of me that is identified with is the creation of these endless cycles of anxiety and judgment and feelings of isolation and disconnection and unworthiness. And these are all the landscape of myself. In fact, we can spend our whole lives protecting, improving, asserting, concealing, bettering myself. It's actually really a full-time job being a self. You may have noticed, consume an enormous amount of time and energy. Now, we could react to this sense of self, me, with a kind of sense of shame or judgment or blame. But, you know, this is just heaping self upon self. It is heaping self upon self, another offspring of self-absorption. Or we could, as the Buddha suggested, investigate. Be a little bit curious about this sense of me. Is it real or an idea? Is self a noun or is it a process? Is there truly an independent self-existence? We're going on with the good questions from last night. (laughs) Is this who we are? When people came to the Buddha, you know, because this was a big bone of contention in the time of the Buddha, you know, because he was asserting non-self and a whole lot of people around him were asserting an eternal self. So this was a big point of argument in the time of the Buddha. So people would come to the Buddha to argue the case for self. And he would never answer by saying there is either self or there's no self. Instead, he would encourage this investigation. And it's interesting the way the Buddha encouraged this investigation because he would often encourage it first as an external investigation, probably thinking this was a little less threatening to folks, you know. But it's actually a very interesting way to investigate because when we speak of shunyata or emptiness, what we're actually saying is that there is no thing that has an independent self-existence. 
You know, this bell doesn't have its independence of existence. You know, this chair doesn't, this lectern doesn't, this clock doesn't. There's nothing that we see anywhere that has an independent self-existence. So shunyata is really an extension of the understanding of anatta applied to everything. So the Buddha would start with this external contemplation. You know, and the classic one that you read in the suttas, he would, you know, take something like a cart, a cart, right? And he would take apart the cart, you know, and he would say, look, is the wheel the cart? You know, is the shaft the cart? Is the wood the cart? And of course, everybody would say, of course not, you know. It's the composite of all of these that is the cart. Now, we don't have any handy carts in this room, so we'll take a chair, okay? We'll take the chair. Now, it's very clear that this chair has an existence, doesn't it? We would all agree we are not just sitting on an illusion. (laughs) If you were sitting on an illusion, you would sprawl on the floor. But isn't it true that we can take the chair very personally, can't we? My chair. (laughs) Someone else might have a better chair. I mean, we don't even think we take it personally until somebody comes in and sits on your chair. (laughs) Then you really have the sense of this belongs to me. And this belongs to me. This is mine. Now, the chair has a conventional reality, there is no doubt, but does it have an independent self-existence? When we look beneath the concept and the appearance of chair, we see it's not so. What we see is the chair is an ongoing story, actually. The chair is an ongoing process. If you look beneath the concept and the appearance of the chair, you might actually see that, you know, there are people who built the chair. There is the wood that went into the chair. There is the tree that provided the wood. There are the seeds that grew the tree. There is the sun and the rain that made the seeds grow. And you know what? There is one person at some point in human evolution who had an amazing idea it would be useful to have something to sit on. <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary? But for the chair, so what we see is a stream of conditions, and the beginning of that stream of conditions is actually quite untraceable. But they all need to come together in a particular way for the chair to be. And in time, this chair will turn into something else. So when we speak about the emptiness of the chair, we're speaking about what is revealed when we look beneath the surface or the appearance of anything. This is not a denial of the chair. It's not to say there is no chair, but it would be more true to say this is a non-chair. When we do look beneath that surface and appearance, I think what we open to is is a sense of mystery and a sense of depth and the interrelatedness of all things in this fluid and changing life where nothing at all can be pinned down, where nothing at all can be fixed in place by name or by concept. 
So what emptiness is actually teaching us is to let go of all fixed ideas that we hold about ourselves, about the others, about others, about the world. Because we see that when we endeavor to fix things in place, in many ways we stop seeing what is. But she stops seeing what is. And in reality, nothing in this world, including ourselves, is fixed, in place, set in place, static, apart from our view of it. I find that amazing. Nothing is fixed in place apart from our view of it. We'll give you an example. Now, suppose you go to lunch, as we all do. You go to lunch yesterday, and of course, you know, strawberries, or maybe that was the day before. Strawberries. So, you know, the eyes wander a little bit ahead of where you are. Sees the strawberries. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of whatever. The person in front of you takes the last of the strawberries. Now, the next time you see that person... Do you see that person, or do you see the person who took the last of the strawberries? (laughs) Haven't we just fixed them in place by our view? And it's almost, it could be a life sentence. I mean, we could see that person two years later, (laughs) and they would still be the person who took the last of the strawberries. Isn't that amazing? We've just Fix them in place with our view. And our view has become their reality. So letting go of our view is actually to take our seat in this fluid, mysterious, changing life. But even that seat that we take, it's not fixed in place. It is also fluid. We allow an opening rather than a closing to see anew rather than seeing the world and ourselves through the filters of the past. And that capacity to see anew is actually the world of possibility. That's when the person in front of us is no longer the person who took the last of the strawberries. Nagarjuna was another poet of emptiness, and he he said, the Buddhists say that emptiness is the relinquishing of opinions, and that the knowers of emptiness are incurable. Now, all scientists, all Buddhas, all yoginis who walk this path will actually probably not dispute the reality that nothing is solid or fixed in the world. But we can still be strangely reluctant to apply this same investigation that we brought to the chair to me, or to I, or to all that belongs to me. As much as we can sense the freedom of understanding and living in the light of emptiness, At the same time, it can be deeply unsettling to apply this understanding to ourselves. It can seem like almost like an intolerable assault, an insult, a 
an insult, isn't it? <laughs> to our sense of identity, which is as difficult as it can be, <laughs> it also feels kind of safe and secure. And it's what we know, and it's what, what is familiar. Now, one thing I want to be clear about, because I've spoken about understanding non-self does not mean an annihilation of self. This is so important to understand. And I will go on into this more later. But before awakening, there will be a sense of self. And quite frankly, after awakening, there will be a sense of self made up of body, perceptions, emotions, intentions, mind, and of course, name. Something will change, but I will get on to that. And of course, what's holding all of this piece together is our name. You know, the hallmark of me. You know, if, have you ever had the experience of meeting somebody who forgets your name and calls you Jane when your name's Susan? It's a little offending, isn't it? <laughs> you just feel the sort of selfing. You know, imagine if you're sort of sitting here and your eyes are closed and one of us suddenly shouts out in the hall, Jane! Well, you know, if you were Jane... Would that be a neutral experience? <laughs> for everybody else, it's kind of, that's not me. That's not belong to me. That's not who I am. But for Jane, Jane's on the case. You know, what did I do wrong? Why are they calling my name? You know, what, I must have done something, you know. It's interesting how this all gets held together. Now, we hear these competing voices, I think, in ourselves. Inwardly, we long for the release of the painfulness of self-absorption, you know, and its anxiety and judgment and comparison. But we also hear desperately this voice of self-belief inwardly that is saying, you know, look at me. You know, look at me. You know, I remember when my children were little, you know, this was their, their, their mantra was, you know, look at me, look at me, look at me. And we grow up and we get a little quieter, but it's a good look at me. <laughs> You know, look, look at me, and you know, I'm here, you know. And of course, we are here. We are here, you know. We do actually move through our day. We are here. We breathe, we act, we plan, we reflect. But it doesn't mean we have to be so identified with this centrality, which is really a difficult one. And you know that story about the person who is being chased by a tiger and, you know, to save themselves, they jump off a cliff and hold on to a branch and the tiger is salivating up above them, you know, and a hundred feet below there's all these rocky cliffs and they shout out, help, help, you know, please, God, help me. And much to their surprise, a voice comes across and says, yes. It's my deep voice, yes. <laughs> and, and, and they're saying, please, God, help me. I'll do anything you say if you save me. And so the voice says, I'll help you. Let go of the branch. And the person says, anyone else out there? (laughs) We could be so reluctant to let go of the familiar, even though it has a promise of liberation. It is what we know. You know, it's who I am. So what do we do with this dilemma, both wishing to be free of the painfulness of selfing and yet being so identified with it? Well, we don't turn away from this dilemma. We don't turn away. We don't pretend it doesn't exist. We don't condemn it. You know, instead, we kind of just calm our hearts a little bit 
and look a little bit more deeply and see if we can apply the same analytical skills we brought to the chair to ourselves. The Buddha really encouraged this this exploration of the anatomy of me. To to have a sense of the anatomy of a self. So first the Buddha, if we applied those analytical skills to ourselves, first we would investigate our bodies. Now, if the body was myself and had an independent self-existence, if the body was not entwined with countless other untraceable conditions, basically we could have the body we wanted. And most of us would choose to have a body that never had any pain, never got ill, never aged, the body that looked the way we want it to look, uh, could choose the body we want to have. And we all know, don't we, that's simply not an option. It's simply not an option. Our body, like all things that are born, like all things subject to conditions. Once we were just a twinkle in our parents' eye. The body is not under our dominion. Changes often in ways that we don't want and doesn't change the way we do want it to. Now, we could be at peace with this, or we could have a big argument with it. Now, isn't this, if you look at this, isn't this also true of feelings? Now, has anybody been successful yet in choosing their menu of feelings? Has anyone been successful this week in choosing to have only pleasant feelings? Uninterrupted? Has anybody been successful this week in choosing to have no unpleasant feelings? Probably not. No matter how heroically we try, we cannot choose to inhabit the landscape only of delight or bliss or elation. How about consciousness? Apply this to consciousness. Did you invite the thoughts you've had today? Did you invite the mental states you've had experienced today? Did anybody decide today was a day, a good day to have uninterrupted happiness? <coughs> Did anybody decide this morning to have a day of unrelenting obsession? (laughs) (coughs) You have probably noticed how everything in yourself is changing, that nothing is fixed or static. If self truly had an independent self-existence, it's not doing a very good job. So where does the idea of self come from? Where does the idea of this is me, this is mine, this is who I am come from? At what point... Did we make this fluid unfolding process an identity? 
In the Buddhist tradition, in Buddhist teaching, there's two factors involved in this. One is ignorance and the other is clinging. Now, I think intellectually we can accept that we are probably not the pilot in the cockpit controlling and deciding on everything that happens in our mind-body experience. But emotionally, we don't always give up hope. We valiantly keep trying. Anguish and struggle is what is added to the simple truth of every moment through resistance and craving, through rejection and greed, through wanting and not wanting, through liking and disliking. All the ways that we torment ourselves as we struggle to deny emptiness. Now the Buddha described that this is optional. Buddha said struggle is optional. Torment is optional, and it can end in liberation. So let's take this teaching of no thing has an independent self-existence that we can intellectually accept, and look at what it is as a practice. First, I would like to suggest that self is not a noun. It is a verb. It is a process that arises and passes. Selfing is almost a reflexive reaction that arises in the face of or in the intimation of pain or injury or loss or the unknown. Selfing also arises almost as a reflexive reaction in the face of or the intimation of pleasure. Food, sight, sounds, thoughts that offer the possibility of delight or assurance or satisfaction. I think it is so important to get a felt sense of selfing. Go back to the strawberries. If you were in that position, first the, the sight of the strawberries, can you feel the surge of selfing that arises? You know, I want, I'm looking forward to, I need if they disappear in that last person's plate, could you feel the felt sense of selfing, the contractedness, the tightness, the moving towards, the moving away from, the tightening in the body? Selfing is felt like a kind of surge, a kind of contractedness, and it brings a, a tunnel vision. It brings a sort of tunnel sense, a tunnel vision. You know, you, zo- you contract in, whether it's around the strawberries or the notice board or a sound in the room. And underlying that kind of contracting, there's this sort of background, ongoing symphony that we're often hardly even conscious of. Of this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me. A deep sense of contractedness as we try to keep, control, or get rid of. Now, at times in our wiser moments, we probably tell ourselves it would be a good idea to let go. But you know what? That suggestion even carries its own sense of delusion. Because in a way, that suggestion that I I should let go, it's another way of centralizing self, and and it's another way of self-referencing. Think about it. 
Did I decide to cling? Did I decide to grasp? Isn't it curious that I would imagine I could decide to let go? I, I actually, I think I said this one in groups, I don't think I've ever let go of any one thing in my entire life. I think what we do in the practice, I haven't. I think what we do in the practice is that we cultivate the conditions and the understandings in which letting go happens. And I think this is so important to understand because people feel such a failure after they've shouted at themselves for 20 years to let go of something and find it's still not working. We cultivate the inner conditions that allow letting go to happen. It's not that it's it's a reframing of our language. It's to see that clinging and selfing are both part of the same fabric. Clinging and selfing are part of the same two two threads of the same cloth. They are they are processes, processes that arise and pass together. Now, what is the the other side of this that I think is so interesting to see? There are also many moments when that's not happening in our day. You know, if we went through our day in a constant process of clinging and selfing, I doubt if we'd make it to lunch, quite frankly. It would be so exhausting. So I'd encourage you to really appreciate and notice the moments when non-clinging is happening. When you might step out into the sunshine and see the grass rippling without any sense of clinging or grasping anywhere. When you look outside and you see the trees silhouetted in the light without any sense of clinging or grasping. Have you ever found yourself being in the presence of all things without wanting anything, without planning anything, just feeling simply remarkably alive? Have you ever found yourself sitting and walking and just forgotten that you were doing it? And there it's just sitting and just walking and the breath is breathing itself and you have no particular sense of being in charge of it, on top of it, no sense of being the breather, the walker, the sitter, It's just happening. Have you ever found yourself faced with a person in deep distress and pain and unhesitatingly reaching out to embrace, to include, without any sense of being the fixer or the solver or the rescuer, a kind of unhesitating compassion in which the ideas of I and you soften and fall away? There are many more less dramatic moments where we have a little bit of an intimation of emptiness, a little bit of an intimation of non-self. They're not so dramatic. The moments when our hearts are not gripped by views, by craving, by aversion. You know, you go and you brush your teeth. You know, you go and you just simply, you know, walk, put on your shoes It's not all this dramatic, kind of me, mine, belongs to me. 
Now I think we all have plenty of experience and practice in selfing, practicing solidity, but perhaps we can also learn to practice non-selfing, non-clinging, emptiness, by noticing these little intimations, the intimations of non-self. You know, Leonard Cohen, he once read, wrote, he said, ring the bells that can still ring. Forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Look at the cracks in selfing. Now, emptiness and non-self, they're not states, but understandings. They're ways, they're paths. We see it in our lives, don't we? This ongoing process of opening, closing, opening, closing. We sort of sense it in our bodies, sense it in our minds and our hearts. Countless times in a single day, opening, closing, opening, closing. In, in, in the face of sights, sounds, events, people, sensations, opening, closing. And what we start to get, get a sense of is that the closing, the contracting, is the kind of the mechanism of selfing and clinging, born of seeing substantiality, born of seeing an independent self-existence in all things. Opening, as I'm using it here, we might say is emptiness responding to emptiness. No sense of me or mine or this belongs to me. Now, as all things in this teaching, the Buddha would, would, not, would, would suggest that this sense of non-selfing, of non-clinging, is not something that's just a lucky accident. It's not something that is left to chance. But perhaps can actually, non-selfing is something that is cultivated as a path. We, we begin to see that closing and contractedness is not bad or wrong, but it is suffering. It's a process that sets us apart and isolates and estranges us. And perhaps we begin to see opening or non-selfing as an end to disconnection and suffering. And perhaps we can learn to probe beneath the appearance and surface of things, our views, our likes, our dislikes, and begin to soften in the midst of contractedness. In the place where we practice non-self, non-selfing, is in the midst of selfing. Not somewhere else. This is where we practice it. Beginning to soften and empty, not trying to annihilate anything at all, not even myself. Rumi, he once said, being is not what it seems, nor non-being. The world's existence is not in the world. The world's existence is not in the world. Before liberation, after liberation, there is a sense of self. The difference is the view. No longer seeing substantiality, independence, you know, self just, we just get through the day, you know, I'm coming to sit, one is not coming to sit, simply a convention, you know, I'm going to ring the bell, it's not like one is going to ring the bell, it's simply a convention, but the view is changed, no longer believed in, no longer seen an independent self-existence in anything. Still getting up in the morning, breathing, moving through the day, but without wrong view, without unwise view. 
the great poets of emptiness of Nagarjuna and Shantideva, they, re- they really spoke of the profound ethical implications of understanding emptiness. Locked into self-view, there's great room for ill will, for fear, for craving. No longer locked in the closed world of I and you, of us and them, there is a most natural empathy and compassion. Shantideva, he put it, he says, just as these arms and legs as are seen as the limbs of, a, of, of one body, why are embodied creatures not seen as the limbs of life? Take just a moment to sit quietly together. May all beings be free from struggle and torment. May all beings abide in wise understanding. May all beings rest in an awakened heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.